Hello to the Missing Witches Coven and Happy New Moon. Happy Pride Month. Today we're celebrating by hearing from one of my absolute icons. I have to be honest, normally I try to keep interviews focused, but this was just me fangirling out. I spoke to one of the original founding members of a legendary, psychedelic, late 60s drag troupe, The Coquettes, Fayette Hauser, who has worked with John Waters and Divine. If you know the song, you make me feel mighty real by Sylvester. Sylvester was one of The Coquettes. So Fayette and I talked about her new book. The Coquettes, Acid Drag and Sexual Anarchy. Her work in wearable art, her work with Bette Midler, communal living, psychedelics, the occult and hippiedom, and so, so very much more. So please join me in welcoming one of my absolute idols. Fayette Hauser. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. This is going to take me a second. I apologize for wasting this minute of your time. How are you? I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm more busy now than I was before the whole thing started. I mean, I was disappointed that I couldn't do my live events because I was so looking forward to it. You know, I had so many plans. Um, we're still talking about this the big one in the SF Public Library because we there were two exhibitions planned. One was at the LGBT Center here, and the other one is in San Francisco in the Public Library in the Hormel Center. And then uh, there was a big event in the Corette Auditorium, and it was supposed to be in May. And then we pushed it to June 17th, thinking that it would be okay. But now I just, we've all been talking because there's a whole team. And we don't think that, you know, we're going to have to wait because the library's not open or anything. And they're not, even if they open a little bit, they're not going to have people gathering. So, not the kind of spectacle that you're used to putting on for sure. Exactly. (laughs) We were going to decorate the whole, there's a, a gallery there and we were going to make it look like a, a, the Cockett house. <laughs> oh, what a tragedy. Well, I hope that it's going to be rescheduled. That's what I just keep saying. Like nothing is canceled. Everything is saved for later. Hopefully. But maybe there will be an element. I wanted to bring this up anyway. Now seems like a good time of mask making as wearable art. Do you oh, yes. foresee oh, that as a future? Yes, yes. Here's here's my. For those listeners who are listening, Fayette has made a, a little face on a mask out of sequins and buttons. I'm a deco gentleman. <laughs> so you're you're already getting into this uh, aspect of wearable oh, art as masks. Oh my God, they're all decorating masks. Yeah, I've I've got you know they keep sending them to me. I, I I've got so many. You know, really, my friends are fabric collectors. I have a lot of wearable art artist friends, and my friend Gina has uh, she she's 
collects fabric and she has this beautiful bark cloth and linen from the 40s and 50s and right so she's making them and she just can't make them fast enough she's selling them out like crazy before she has an etsy shop and you know they're going up on etsy and boom out the door because they're so cool looking they're so cool and, and so practical so what what do you think i mean that's a function of what's the function of wearable art in say 1970 because the mainstream was so far it it was so far away we were not connected we never went to a department store you know macy's did not exist for us <laughs> existe pause <laughs> gone you know we never even watched we didn't have a tv there was nothing you know we were on a parallel world we had our own world so of course we had to all make our own clothes everybody had a sewing machine every commune house had a sewing machine and there were different looks you know that that came about there was like the gypsy there was the gypsy hippie look and um so there was the glam look i mean the glam thing came out of the glam look you know so that was that was our style of freak was very high glam very bright colors you know as the tribes evolved like the the early tribe was very nature very organic created the organic food movement and organic farming and by the time we came along we were sort of the second generation that came along in the late 60s and um 68 was kind of when that transition happened because the uh, the early tribes they all moved to the country and they created like Peter Coyote had Olima and it was a back to the earth they didn't even have they only had cold water I mean you have no idea they were like pioneers it was very but he loved the cockettes and we used to go see him at Olima because he was into the same things we were except he was like digging in the dirt you know so, <laughs> so they were very and also um, the Wild West Victoriana and American Indian, all of that became very prominent in, in San Francisco. So people were in, into like buckskin vests and the fringe, of course, and uh, leather and, and leather and lace, that kind of thing. And the girls had all long skirts. And so, but then that when they were safely put away in the country, <laughs> I remember one time, one night, I was at Winterland and I was totally cockett out. And I ran into the people that I had met when I first got there that were part of the, the family dog, the big brother family. And one of them said, look at her. <laughs> and they were all, oh, you know, what happened to you? You know, and this kind of thing, it was really great. And what had happened to you? Can you describe this look that they were reacting oh, to? Well, Do you remember? Yeah, well, when we when we all finally got together in the Cockett house, um, it was really everything exploded and then came out the feathers and the bright colors and everything, you know, like fuchsia tops. And then we went back to the fabric stores and there was one fabric store uh, in downtown um that really sold like gorgeous stuff and we would go in there all the time and, and i had this one friend his name was gypsy joey and he had like a workout bag they called it <laughs> so i would say well 
I think I'm going to go all pink and purple in this show. And so he would go in there and, and, and boost like all of the pink feathers and you know <laughs> um for again for our listeners boost means steal <laughs> but that was that was part of it it was like an anarchy kind it was of an anarchy and we only did it from corporations companies of you know, course of not, course not from you know the street we didn't shot you know we didn't pick people's pockets no it's like very much like a robin hood kind of right, a right. theatrical robin hood vibe yeah the corporate pocket thank you Jennifer. yeah <laughs> yeah and, and i know that like different communes um had different functions like there was like a food commune and a, a child care commune and like if i recall correctly a, a mechanics commune. yeah yeah um, Peter Mitten, who was our piano player, they all had old cars. So they were constantly going to, you know, guys love cars and they all want to tinker. So that was the <laughs> commune, the tinkering, you know, and motorcycles, God, that was huge. And so you would go there. And I mean, that commune still existed in early Burning Man. So they had a camp at Burning Man, right, where you would take your bike. I mean, it's still really it's still happening you know? and i mean what are you going to do of course i mean the food conspiracy was the best though because um well the coal street commune was the first to actually create a farm in marin where they would farm i mean we didn't want anyone else to touch us we wanted to have it all done by ourselves because we we knew what was pure and fabulous you know so uh, yeah they they went to marin and and organically you know created their own farm and then they would bring the food into the city and distribute it so then this other commune evolved called and they called themselves the food conspiracy which was such a good name and uh so we would give them, it was either you purse, you know, you'd contribute yourself either $25 a week or food stamps. And they had two deliveries and one would be all produce and one would be dairy because of course it was vegetarian. So you, but you would get eggs and milk and cheese. There was always like a lot of cheese and pasta. I just remember so much vegetarian lasagna all the time, you know. <laughs> And of in the Cockett house, we had cooks. And of course, we made our own bread. You know, that was that was a big thing in every commune, uh, made their own bread. It was considered sacred that you made bread, kneading the bread. It was like a ritualistic thing, you know. And still, I think still people make their own bread. I mean, look at now. How many, how many loaves of bread and cakes and pies are you seeing on Instagram? Mm -hmm. And yeast, yeast being sold out in grocery stores because people are returning to this. About his his yeast thing and his sourdough showing was showing his sourdough bubbling <laughs> yeast thing. I mean, I I am I am the opposite. I'm I don't even want to touch the oven. I don't think my oven's been on in ten years, really. But <laughs> can you talk a little bit more about that? That's like as a viewer, um, that sacred process of bread making. Okay, you didn't want to get your hands dirty, but what did it, what did no, it look no, like? I mean, it, it, you know, my head was in a different place, but yeah, it was, it was Nancy Gurley is the woman who taught me everything. You know, she was like, 
I met her in Colorado and I had no intention of going to San Francisco because I thought it was over because this was 68, the summer of 68. And I thought, well, the summer of love is over. I thought it was like an event. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happened. So uh, I'm going to go to Paris, you know, this kind of thing. And I had saved up $500, which was really good then. You know, travel was cheap and everybody was welcoming to young people. Oh, here, stay here, stay with us. You could do whatever you want. So, uh, but then I met Nancy Gurley and she, she tuned me in so much. Months, I spent months with her. So by the end, it was almost like a crash course in the counterculture revolution at the time, you know, this, here's what's happening. And it was everyday stories walking in the, in the Rocky Mountains and it was incredible. So she, when I, I got to San Francisco and I would visit her, she would make bread and she would tell me how, what a ritual it was to, to, I mean, she always had, they always hand dyed fabric, you know, everybody was getting, everybody wanted cotton, you know, now remember polyester was, happening then you know what i mean not the john waters film but the actual fabric yes <laughs> so this is like 60s 70s polyester was huge i mean now we can love it but then we were like no plastic fabric so we were all about organic cotton and silk and you could not find it you couldn't find it really as far as garments were concerned other than a t-shirt and even t-shirts were not pure cotton that was not happening at all so we would find victorian clothes like victorian blouses and dye them that's where the dyeing came in because everything victorian was either white or black so right so these cotton peignoirs and knickers and blouses and all that kind of stuff so her favorite color was old rose so everything was old rose so when you went into her place, all the tables were covered in these fabrics and laces and, and she would have the dough rising with, you know, old rose lace covering the rising dough. And yeah, so it, it, was, it, it was her morning ritual was to sweep the floor because she, she did mushrooms with the, you know, the Michoacan Mexican women and that's who turned her on. And that's what they did. They got up and they swept the floor and then they made the bread, you know, so <laughs> that's what she did. But the bread, when you make your own bread, and besides, you know, in the store, again, there was no whole, well, there may be, there was pumpernickel in the Jewish deli, but there was no whole grain bread at the time. Everything was white bread. I mean, your mom, you know, when you grow up, it was all white bread sandwiches. Mm -hmm. My brother loved it till the day he died because, you know, he loved his chocolate. But, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, for us, it was, you know, we're making our own bread and we don't want that plastic bread. Yeah, so it was that, like a resistance yes, measure. That was, yeah, yeah it, was, it was really discarding everything that was not pure, actually. Because when you took psychedelics it was serious you know i mean we had fun with it for sure but a psychedelic trip was very serious and you really saw clearly what was pure and what wasn't so um all those things came out because of that i i, I, 
I read somewhere that you said that there's a mysticism to tie-dye. Oh, God, yes. Can you talk about that? <laughs> well, before the coquettes, uh, yeah, everyone was into tie I don't exactly know. That was happening even before I got there. And I I'm not sure exactly where it emerged, but very early on, women that were making their clothes, people that were making clothes, not just women, but they, they were, the tie-dye was happening when I got there. But, but um, when Nikki and Harlow and I lived together, this was the house before uh, the Coquette house. The kitchen had a great big iron, cast iron uh, thing on the stove. And that was the tie-dye bucket. And it was always going. And we would, I mean, it would start out, you know, you'd put some colors in and you would start out with one thing that would be strong colors and you would add water and keep it going until you got these pale, pastel, fabulous colors. I remember that I got this, it was a bias cut satin gown that was off white and Nikki tie dyed it so that it was pale orange and and pinks and purples. And I wore that to death. It was, it was like my magical mystical dress, you know? And I mean, the importance of putting clothes on you that really um, met your soul was so important. Um, you, you didn't put anything on you that wasn't meaningful. You, not, not so much as, yeah, of course there were no bras, that was out the window. <laughs> But any, anything that you put on had to have like a really, really significant meaning for you. Um, you, you didn't wear anything that, that was not real for you and symbolic and expressive because you were in such a intense state of mind that was so complete that uh, you had to express it with your clothes. And everybody did that. So it was, <laughs> what a colorful parade is back. <laughs> Your description of the the bubbling cauldron of missing yes. dyes, I mean, that, that really does just sound like absolute witchcraft to me. Yeah. And, and did, did you talk about it in those terms back then? Like how much occult oh, oh, conversation was happening? Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes. The family dog was deep into the occult. And they had their own magician named Martoon, and he was, they were all from Detroit. The family dog was from Detroit. And so Martoon had, had long hair, he was kind of wiry, and he had a long mustache like that. He was very much the magician. He really looked the part. And he had a twang, I remember that, and he loved women, absolutely loved women. And he was also a painter. So uh, some of the family dog lived in what we called the Russian embassy which is the house on Scott and Fulton. It's 1198 Fulton. And it's now owned by a friend of mine who's a Victorian preservationist and it's so gorgeous. But at the time, you know, the Victorians, they were all unpainted. They were either peeling gray paint, peeling whitewash or raw. I mean, the, the city looked so spooky because all the people wanted suburbia just like the six, just like my parents. They, it was suburbia and they wanted the ranch house and everything was white, painted white and, and primary colors and, you know, modern, K-Moderno, thick of the mid-century. So people had abandoned the Victorians and nobody wanted to live in them and they were bulldozing them. 
But the hippies, they started squatting in them or they were owned by people who didn't live there and they were renting them really cheap to, you know. And so we would rent a whole flat for like a hundred dollars. You know, it was nothing. So um, this was divided between 15, 20 people. people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, because Scrumbly built lofts. We had at least one loft in every room because they all had 12 to 18 foot ceilings. Oh no, the Victorians were fabulous. That's another reason why it happened in San Francisco because the Victorians accommodated all these hippies with an alternate lifestyle and uh, they were not, not homeless. Hippies were not homeless. That's a, a misconception. They were not living on the street like there's now, you know. Mm-hmm. But they were occupying these. They were, yeah, mm-hmm. occupied the Victorians and actually saved the Victorians. So that now it's like the pride of the city, the painted ladies and everything. So in the Russian embassy, which is one of the earliest, I think it's 1889, it was built. And Scott and Fulton uh, is a peak. It's, the, it's really the center of the city because Fulton goes from city hall to the beach. And it's a hill that goes up. It's a pretty steep hill. And when you come up Fulton, a lot of the bike riders, you can see them groaning up the hill, man. It's that steep. And so is Scott Street. So Scott and Fulton meet at this apex like that. And um, it has a tower. So it's five stories with a big tower at the top that had at that time a 365 degree view. And the tower, uh, it was square, and it's a pretty big room. And the man who built it, he he was uh, he was a German importer of chocolate or something like that. But he also, yeah, right. He also had shipping. Now that's you know that's magic. I mean, chocolate. What else? You know. <laughs> so he, but he also had shipping interests. So he built the tower. He built the house on that spot and the tower so that he could see the bay and he had a telescope and he could see uh, the ships coming in and whether his ship had come in or not. And also Marconi, who developed, you know, the wireless, he did the first wireless transmission in San Francisco uh, in the West Coast from the tower. So now it has historical, it has a plaque and all that kind of stuff. But in 19, it was privately owned by two different, he sold it, then another person. Then in 1928, these Russian, white Russian expatriates from the revolution bought it like crazy, ex-military, really decadent people bought it. And Jimmy has a, a drawing, you know, that is a drawing of the house. And it says in very florid script, the Imperial Russian Embassy. <laughs> Um, but there was no Imperial Russia at the time anymore, of course. So everybody nicknamed it the Russian Embassy. And it had a nightclub. There's a ground floor that we, everybody calls it the ballroom. And that was a nightclub. And upstairs was the, the whorehouse, right? So that went on until well into the, uh, I think, through the 30s. And, and in the late 30s, it became a boarding house for jazz musicians. So... But in the 60s, it, so it was kind of cut up into rooms by then, um, you know, walls added, that kind of thing. So, but in the early 60s, I think it was even in 62, it became one of the earliest communes in the city for this theater group called the Calliope Company. 
And then it just became like a rotating group of communes and different people. So when I got there in 68, the family dog was in there. And Martoon lived in the tower, right? Because he was the magician. There you go. <laughs> and I could understand why. Because, I mean, I've, I've been in that house a lot. Because Jimmy's, I always stay there now when I go there. And if you get high enough, you can definitely see the ghost. <laughs> I'm sure. Because there's a whole tarot deck that you're laying out here. You've got the tower. You've got the magician, surely. <laughs> the arcana is well represented there. Right. Yeah. And at the time he was doing, so the tower is very high and, and has a, a peaked roof that uh, where inside the tower, you can see the inside of the roof. I mean, it's just fabulous still. I mean, now it's just gorgeous. So he did these paintings and they were in the corners. They were tall and narrow and they were the seven deadly sins. And then he had a giant altar. So uh, on the the top floor of the house, then there's a little staircase that goes up to the, I mean, the whole house was totally magical. And everybody had altars. I mean, the family dog was deep. They were really deep and they were way into the magic. So he had a curtain, like a black satin curtain that had a white pentagram, but they were all into white magic. It was all about white magic. <laughs> so he had a white pentagram and to go up, you had to part the pentagram and go up the stairs. And then the first thing you saw was this gigantic altar that he had with, I mean, you know, they were collectors too. I mean, everybody that was into psychedelics was into symbology, iconography, objet, you know? So everybody was wildly collecting and making altars and vignettes. And, you know, I mean, really that was huge. And anybody who was, who was born into that, was rebirthed into that, still. I mean, you know, we all, yeah, mad collectors. So, but then uh, when you, there was no place to sit, there was only the bed. So the altar and then the bed, it was a huge bed and you, you had to get on the bed. And <laughs> that was, yeah. And so you lay on the bed and then you had this view of the entire city. It was fabulous. So he would summon you because I, I, at that point, when I got to the city in 68, I was staying on Noe Street with two other people that were, one of them was the, the family dog dealer, you know, <laughs> and uh, her name was Paula and then Patty Cakes. And so then, I, you know, Nancy said, here, this is where you're going to live. You know, so, so I moved in there. And so one night, Martoon, you know, sent Fayette over. And so it's like... <laughs> It's like, the, oh, it's fabulous. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> That's amazing. And such a fully functioning alternate society that was operating on a whole other level with a whole other set of societal, uh, you know, situations and ways of living. It was, yeah, it was divine to say the least divine to say the least. And I, I mean, for me personally, I, I feel like psychedelics were like an important part of my journey, but I also hesitate to recommend <laughs> psychedelics. Well, I, I think psychedelics is the only thing that's going to save us at this point. Thank you. I'm going to let you recommend psychedelics. Can you get into that a little bit more? Oh yeah. No, once you really are rebirthed through psychedelics, 
you understand your position in the universe you understand how what your real job in the universe is to expand the universe your responsibility is to expand the universe in a positive way and everybody understood these things and the more journeys the psychedelic journeys everything it was a teaching lesson so anybody and we all did it we did it together we would either do it two together or a group of us and we would plan it i mean it wasn't you know there there were some people that were taking it every day you weren't supposed to do that i mean uh, and they they kind of went off track but um most everybody would really like today we're going to have a trip and we're going to go to mount tam and we planned it you know and we would have all the the necessary things that you would need you would need some tea you know you would need uh fruit you know these are the kind of things that you were drawn to eat you, you didn't want to eat a hamburger for god's sake no yeah. So, <laughs> yeah i mean my feeling is that psychedelics will replace um the, the kind of rituals that we have now that have become meaningless and i i mean i don't want to insult anyone but things like confirmation you know in the catholic religion you have confirmation and you have bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and you know i don't know whatever but those those i think will be i think this is the only possible future because everybody needs like a a jump start enlightenment here you know yeah the, the coming of age ceremony will be so done with psychedelics as well yeah psychedelics and 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 have leaders and you would prepare for it and then that's how you initiate the child into a proper adulthood on earth you know i mean here you are this is your universe now get into it <laughs> I'm sorry, I just need to repeat that. This is your universe, so get into it. I want that on a t-shirt, thank you. Oh, yeah. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I see, because those kind of, they're just parties and giving kids money and all that kind of thing. And, and I think that's kind of what psychedelics turned into, too. Just like parties and, you know, not, not the now, spiritual. Yeah. Well, you know, the psychedelics were heavy, hot and heavy when, when the cockettes first formed. So everybody that was in the core group of the cockettes were all psychedelicized. Everybody in the group had been in San Francisco for at least a year. So we had all been rebirthed. So the cockettes was like our second incarnation, you know, and, and as a group, we created our particular future vision, you know, that was glamorous and happy and fun and, and, funny and uh, expressive you know what i mean we had our own thing that was really solid mm -hmm. but then um by the time it ended psychedelics really had kind of gone out of style in a way but i i think it was only it had to happen that way because psychedelics really kind of uh it was a neurological situation where people's nerves were just too frazzled and you know, they had people had taken as much as they could. And people that had really become rebirthed in a great way had either gone to the East, to Eastern religions, or had gone to the country, or had, you know, like we went into the theater space. And, um, but people that came to San Francisco after that, they really got into more of the hard drugs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that was a shame that it really took that left turn. 
Yeah. Uh, because it was, um, I think it would have expanded a lot more and expanded in a better way. Even though the individually people were writing books, they were, everybody was doing a serious creative project. So a lot of that carried on, but then the, the drugs took down a lot of people, which was really yeah. sad. I so, mean, I, I, uh, when I think of Janice Joplin, I, I really think that she was doing her best day at Hauser <laughs> in terms of her, in terms well, of her Nancy luck. Gurley dressed her completely, you yeah. know. Nancy Gurley was her godmother and mine as well, you know, mm -hmm. and many others. She was true. She was like the Earth Mother um, early icon is she still around has anyone has she written a book she, she passed i wish you know mm -hmm. i wish okay. and at the time when we were in in colorado i at the time i wished i had a tape recorder because she was she was uh she had a phd at, at an early age you know she she was a, a child prodigy as far as her intellect was concerned so um you know i mean she was when she spoke, it was so mind blowing. And uh, she would have been the one to write an incredible book. She was the first one that was into essential oils. And the real, that's what she was into just before she died was, you know, ritualizing essential oils. And there was a, a place in the Tenderloin called Nature's Herbs. And I mean, I think it's the same company that's still going, but it was a little store that sold these little brown bottles uh, with all these different oils in them. And we would make a journey to nature reserves and get our essential oils. And I still have some of the bottles and they look like, you know, like old English, you know. Apothecary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> apothecary looking. It's just fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, the Victorians were into that too. You know, that was another reason I think why and and the whole um, metaphysical movement from the late 1800s, early 1900s was very much alive. There was a metaphysical bookstore in San Francisco that everybody went to and it had a library you could sit there and read. It, yeah, so <gasps> it's really happening then. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the, the various spaces that were inhabited by um, the, you know, you, the people that you associated with, be they farms or, in your case, the theater. Um, but the Coquettes uh, took what you were doing in the streets to the theater. This was not so much like uh, you, you, you dressed up only on stage. I mean, surely oh, the... No, no. It, we were, it was really important for people to be real. You know, that was you know, coming out of the 60s, and even now I see films that were made in the 60s and it just reinforces what I even knew then. When I was growing up, people didn't, didn't talk about their feelings at all. People, people expressed themselves, people all had a facade and you presented this cool facade and you would, um, you know, suggest or um, intimate things. Nobody said, I love you outright. Nobody said that. Nobody expressed, you know, someone else positively, like, you look so beautiful, or nobody would say anything like that. So, and I remember feeling that, that it was so false at the time. So that's one of the things when I got to San Francisco and people were, 
real. They would say what they really meant. And you didn't have to do it like a translation in your head <laughs> as to what the hell was really going on instead of this facade of stupidity. So that was kind of the dawn of that. And um, it was also the dawn of the, the self-awareness movement that came along because people were trying to discover who they really were and not, you know, who their parents thought they were. And, you know, it's, yeah, it was confusing growing up in the 60s, I'll tell you. <laughs> so uh, what... I, I obviously have like a very highly romanticized view of, you know, the cockettes and, and the life of the cockettes. Um, <laughs> but what, what was the reaction of, of like the straight people, for lack of a better word, when, when you were in the parks, when you were, or were there just like no straight oh, no, people in San Francisco? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you could say that. I mean, just about everybody that was living in San Francisco either had a child or a neighbor or somebody that was involved in it, even in the slightest way. So uh, the third cock house, we lived across from the panhandle. And so there's pictures of us uh, on this bench in the panhandle. And you can see these two guys, two black guys, walking through the panhandle and they're looking at us and laughing, you know, so, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the whole city was taken up with it. So it was almost, it was very much like, you know, Paris in the twenties or even the way New York was. New York in the sixties was actually quite fabulous because it was design wise and fashion wise, it was really peaking. Um, so you would see it on the street. You'd see fantastic fashion on the street. And that's the way it was in San Francisco with this whole counterculture vibe, the whole, um, you know, ethos of the, of the movement was going on everywhere. I mean, it was really, it was thick in the air. You could cut it with a knife. Yeah. So you found that when people were laughing, they were more laughing with you than at oh, you. It okay. wasn't like a mean spirited. No, no. They no. And they're, you know, people were making an effort to be positive and say positive things to to actually grow that vibe because people realized when when you're positive, when you take a positive point of view, you know, you 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 create something instead of tearing it down. So um, that was really the vibe going on. And also there was hitchhiking. And here's the thing about hitchhiking. Because there was like businessmen, of course, and people like that, regular people. So you'd hitchhike maybe two at a time and you'd get in the car and they would like, what, what, you know? So then you'd take them to the car. <laughs> so we were into initiating people into the lifestyle and, and into, uh, you know, raising their fashion sense or their hippie awareness you know so yeah there is <laughs> some spreading the word all the time man. and there are some really great minds like within the cockettes obviously but also um in terms of your collaborations i'm just like alan ginsburg um, well, alan ginsburg loved the cockettes first of all because they were we were all gorgeous i mean not not to say but I mean, no i mean facts are facts just <laughs> <laughs> show you know I, I mean, it started in the house where we were living, but then afterwards to increase the group, hibiscus would go in the park, Harlow and hibiscus would go in the park and they would pick out like the prettiest hippies. <laughs> and, and if I'm not mistaken, you were like a, 
you were like a child model. Is that correct? Oh, I like, was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah. ostensibly beautiful. No arguments will come. <laughs> so Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. So Allen Ginsberg loved the Cockett House because there were so many beautiful boys there. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So uh, I remember Rumi. Rumi lived at one time in Berkeley with some guys, some other gay guys. And they, they couldn't get Ginsburg out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds exactly right to me. <laughs> yeah. Alan, come on, are you going to pay rent or what? <laughs> and what about, um, how did you get involved with John Waters and Divine? Oh, well, the, the theater where we played, the Palace Theater, was um, on the weekends, it was the Nocturnal Dream Show that, that Sebastian was running. Um, and he was a cinephile and um, he was showing films every weekend and it started at midnight and it was a Chinese movie theater at, uh, you know, it was at the end of um, North Beach where North Beach and Chinatown, it was really near the bay. So, so it was very much a part of Chinatown too, but North Beach, very North Beach. And so um, I think Stephen Arnold had found the theater and Sebastian was part of the Stephen Arnold group. And Stephen Arnold had made a film called Messages, Messages, and he showed it at the palace. Um, but then he went off to Hawaii and uh, Sebastian kept doing it. You know, they named it the Nocturnal Dream Show and, and Sebastian made a deal with the manager of the theater and uh, I mean, you know, he was paying the manager of the theater, so it was fine with him. <laughs> and Miss, Mr. Chu was totally inscrutable, you know. So, so it drew all the hippies after Winterland, you know, I mean, that would end and you would still be raging <laughs> and you would want to go somewhere. So everybody went to the, to the Nocturnal Dream Show because it was a real safe space. You would be in the theater, you could take more, psychedelics you know it had a it was a big old like vaudeville theater it was beautiful had a great proscenium stage and it had a balcony i mean it i forget how many but it fit a lot of people it was pretty big and uh so the balcony was like uh you know the sex fest upstairs if you met somebody you would go up to the balcony and have fun you know so <laughs> everybody went it was great so I mean, Hibiscus had found another theater to do it, but then that fell through. And that's, that's a whole story that's in the book. But um, because he wanted so much to do it on the New Year's Eve of 6970, uh, Link knew who he, he was also living. It was all Scrumbly's house, you know, where that was the, that was the core house, the original. And so, so Link knew Sebastian, and so he went to him because Hibiscus was absolutely, once his, his theater fell through, he was just upset and inconsolable because he, we were, it was very close to, I mean, it was like a week before or something. So uh, Link went to Sebastian and said, can we just jump on stage and do something? We want to announce our new effort. And Sebastian said, absolutely no problem because on special holidays, he would he would have live entertainment as well as the films. So, and he was actually looking for, he only recently, you know, he has a piece in the book and I didn't even know this until he wrote that piece, 
was that he was actually looking for a group to perform at the theater, to do live performance. And so he was letting anybody perform to see if something would emerge. And eh, something so that, did. Something sure did. <laughs> yeah. That happened on New Year's Eve. And when we came out on stage and did what we did, the, the roof blew off. You know, honestly, and none of us expected that. We were dumbfounded. And then Hibiscus, of course, put the record on again, you know, and we, we went crazy and the whole audience went nuts. And so there was no turning back, obviously. And so our whole lives turned around right then and there. There was nothing. That was clearly the God shot. This is your job. So keep going. You know, that was, <laughs> we all got hit that night. The big bolt. You know, God I, shot. I yeah, love that. God shot. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the theater owner had seen, I think it was Multiple Maniacs and wanted to book Multiple Maniacs. No, no, Sebastian. That's Sebastian. Sebastian, yeah. Sebastian yeah. Ran the Nocturnal Dream Show. The theater, mm -hmm. I don't even know who owned the theater, but the theater manager mm -hmm. and Sebastian had made a deal. So yeah, Sebastian was always looking for avant-garde films, and there was a lot. I mean, he would show the French New Wave along with silent films, and he showed everything. And so he was always looking for new films, and so he found Multiple Maniacs. And, oh, we went crazy when we saw Multiple Maniacs. Are you kidding? That yeah. scene when they have the, the, you know, the revival, when Mink is doing the revival and Divine comes in and shoots them all. Oh, my God. We went nuts when we saw I mean, I... I saw it for the first time in like, you know, the 2000s and it was still like, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to see it then. I mean, there's no other film scene that can compare to that. I no. mean, no. Whatever, what scene can <laughs> that in perfection? Yeah. Perfection, <laughs> acting, everything. I mean, and who better, but divine. I mean, really. So uh, then Sebastian went looking for, for John Waters and he, he, contacted him. So John came to San Francisco um, before Divine. So John came and he lived, I think he lived for a while in San Francisco. So we all knew John. And then um, it, was, it wasn't until 72, the spring of 72, that Divine came. But this is before Pink Flamingos, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Divine came and, I mean, there were other pockets of freak theater people. There was uh, Tomato Duplenty had created the Whiz Kids in Seattle. He had been in early cockette shows. No, believe me, Hibiscus really was a shaman. And when he turned you on to your true self, your magical, fabulous self, there, it was forever, you know. And he really, he changed so many people's lives. He was so wonderful. You have no idea what a great person he was and what a genius. And, and it's so iconic too that he happened to be caught in that moment of like shaping a flower into a, right. a gun barrel that became this iconic photo and then unrecognizable as hibiscus. I know, and even that was even before he was hibiscus. Yeah, yeah. But the thing with uh, he he had a destiny. There's no question about it. No question. And uh, he was he was born into an extremely supportive and loving family, who at, who they were like a regular family and they lived in Florida and but he was he was a theater person I mean he was a reincarnated theater person from god knows when you know what I mean he he used to say theater is the blood in my veins <laughs> yeah 
You have no idea how melodramatic he was. I loved him. <laughs> so so um, he turned his whole family into a theater family, doing children's theater. I mean, he he, they all were involved in the theater, and they had just been regular. You know what I mean? And he did that. And then Ellen Stewart started La Mama in the 60s. And somehow, I don't know how she knew them, but she brought them from Florida to New York to work at La Mama. So Hibiscus was working in an underground theater from early teenager, you know? So he was really, he knew all about underground theater. And I did too, because I was always in Manhattan. When I was in high school, I was always going to Manhattan and, and looking for that stuff. So I, when he came to us and he explained what he wanted, I knew exactly what he was talking about. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, just going back to New York, um, were you, you, did you work with Andy Warhol before you were a coquette? Oh, close. Like, what the hell, Fayette? <laughs> you really, I mean, well, you know, great. Well, I don't know. You know, my grandparents were artists. My grandmother was an opera singer at the Met. And uh, my, my grandfather was, he, he was a visual artist and he was very successful. They were both really successful and my father he had the soul of an artist and he i probably would have been one if it hadn't have been for the depression era the warrior that kind of thing so he was a businessman but my brother went into music and and i went into i was a painter and my father was thrilled to death absolutely thrilled my brother had had singing groups he was into four-part harmony and he later you know it was the manhattan transfer created manhattan transfer so from high wait, school wait Wait, 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 what? Oh yeah, my brother. <laughs> Your brother was in, created Manhattan Transfer. Okay. He I'll just add another one to the incredible <laughs> tapestry here. The family. He, yeah. uh, he had his first uh, four-part harmony group in high school called the Criterions and my dad was the manager. Then when he was in college, he had a he had a trio like the Kingston Trio, like a folk trio. Then after that, he created them. There was a first incarnation of the Manhattan Transfer uh, that was uh, kind of a little all over the place. Um, and that lasted. They had one record on Capitol, but then uh, that disbanded and Tim, you know, honed the, the whole thing much better and he took a few years to do it so when we went to new york with the show uh tim was starting to form the transfer and he was at the show every night and so he was way loved the cockettes and john rothermill was a very early devotee of art deco you know and he 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 was the one who turned my brother on to the whole black and white and the art deco thing and and so that, you know, that's how that happened. But um, anyway, um, <laughs> so, okay. So, so Tim was four years older than me. And when we were growing up, he, whenever, when I was in school, he would be in the next level high school. When I was in high school, he was in college. So, uh, you know, he and I were in on separate worlds and, you know, 
But when he started bringing home his college friends, they were going, let's take your sister, you know, who's, who's she? They were going, I'm, I'm taking her to the beach. <laughs> then he was like, who, what? You know. so, <laughs> so then all of a sudden I was like an asset, you know, but then, I mean, we were tight. We were really tight. So, um, but then he, he was all of a sudden paying attention to what I was into. And I was just combing over everything that was in Manhattan. I thought Manhattan was the absolute mecca of the world. And there was no reason to live or be anywhere else. So you, were, you grew up in New Jersey, right? Yeah, in, yeah. in the beach town, in the Jersey Shore. Yeah. Yeah. So Manhattan was the place to be. Great place in the 60s. Uh, and a lot of people from everywhere else came to the beaches there. So, so, I mean, I was aware of a lot of things being in New Jersey, being in the Jersey shore. So, and it was just a bus ride. It was like an hour bus ride into the city. So there was uh, Pratt Institute, like the oldest art school in New York had like a Saturday uh, high school art class. And I already, my dad had arranged like an art teacher. Uh, this was when I was about 16. I got my first art teacher and then she told me about the Pratt Institute. And so then on Saturdays, I would take the bus into Manhattan and go to this Pratt class. But the, the, the Pratt class was kind of like commercial art, you know, it wasn't, wasn't so deep. So, uh, but I really, you know, after the class was like an hour or something like that. And then I would roam around Manhattan which is really what I wanted to do. So I, I, I never told my parents that I wasn't going to the class anymore. <laughs> so, um, you know, so then every Saturday I would go in and all week long I would comb the papers and find out what the gallery openings were, what films were gonna play. Times Square was where all the French New Wave films played. They all played on Times Square because they were considered racy. Right, of course. We had one like foreign film house in Asbury and it played eight and a half. And, you know, it was like the Catholic League of Decency. You did not go see that Fellini movie. Scandal. So, you know, yeah. So I had a boyfriend. He said, what should we do? I said, we're going to go see eight and a half. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. I didn't understand any of it when I saw it, but I sure loved it. So, but anyway, so, uh, but then Tim, after school, he, he lived in Manhattan. So, but by that time I was in at BU in art school. And so on the weekends, I would go to Manhattan because he had, okay. So he had a roommate um, who, he was a model. He was a male model and he, Steve's, his name was Steve. And uh, he, so he worked for a lot of photographers. He knew the photographers and there were the, the, the New York discos of the sixties, the French discos. The first one was called uh, L'Anterdi. There was L'Anterdi, and then there was Ondine, and Ondine was just incredible, and it was midtown on the east side. It was under the Manhattan Bridge. I remember that, so that's where I started to meet. You know, all the, the authors would go there. Um, I met Tennessee Williams. <laughs> I danced with Tennessee Williams. I did the Frug. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, I mean, it was all models, photographers, and writers. That was the group that was there. I saw the doors there. 
um, the Rolling Stones. They they were there, but they weren't playing there. But you know, so there was Mick Jagger on the the dance floor was like the size of, uh, you know, it, like half my living room was the size of the dance floor. So you were crushed up against Mick Jagger. <laughs> so the, yeah, so there was this uh, Steve Sesnick's employer um had a penthouse uh it was either his agent or it was his employer um he had a big he was wealthy and he had a he was friends with tennessee williams and he had a penthouse around the corner from Ondine. so after Ondine, we would all go uh lester persky we would go to lester's penthouse and all the freaks showed up there so we're sitting around at this penthouse party it was kind of boring and the door opens and in comes the warhol group and it, they had been in London and they had just come back. And Gerard Malango walked in in this black shirt with giant polka dots on it. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> and they headed straight for the kitchen. And so I went to the kitchen too and spent the whole night hanging out with them. So Andy Warhol, he, he was, hey, yeah, we're, we're gonna do a movie. Um, why don't you come, this was a Saturday night, he was, why don't you come to the factory tomorrow and you can be in my movie? And I said, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> be there. So by that time I was driving and uh, my dad, he was really, he would let me do anything. He was fabulous, my dad was fabulous. So I drove into Manhattan, drove to the factory and I mean, at that point, you know, I. So this is, I'm, I'm 17, and I had no idea what drugs were or anything like that. So, uh, I, you know, I, I get to the loft, and Andy opens the door. He goes, oh, Fayette, come in. And it was so, to me, it was so outrageous. I, you know, I was like, <laughs> so, so it was the first loft that had the tinfoil on the walls. And on one side, it was very long. And on one side, they were doing, uh, they were preparing screens for a show in Montreal of those four flowers. So there were all these guys screening, you know, on one side, this whole operation was going on. And on the other side of the loft, there were all these couches and all the freaks were hanging out on these couches and carrying on screaming crazy. And so, <laughs> so Andy gets two stools at like one end of the loft. And he said, you come sit here. You know, he loved watching, that was his thing. He was a voyeur, really. So he put the stools down and he goes, you sit right next to me here and you can, you know, ask me anything. You can ask me anything about anybody here. So what do you want to know? So I'm sitting there and I said, well, who's that? And he goes, that's Marie Mencken. Cause she was carrying on like crazy. And I said, why is she carrying on like that? And he goes, well, she's on speed. Do you know what that is? It's almost like a twisted Sesame Street. <laughs> Do you know what speed is? Letter S. <laughs> and I said, no. And he goes, well, have you ever had any diet pills? And I said, oh yeah, I have. My mom, of course, she was so fat phobic. And she goes, you, have, you know, she was giving me the diet pills, which were so great, I'd take a diet pill and paint away, you know? So I thought they were great for that. So I said, oh yeah. And he goes, well, that's speed. So that was that. But so then also uh, Ronnie Tabble, 
was there and he was the, he was the writer and he had, they were doing films. I mean, I think they had just done Empire because the flyer, they had a, like a, like it was like a public phone that was next to the door and above the public phone was a flyer for Empire. You know, Empire was just the Empire State Building and then the sun sets and, the, you know, the lights come on. That's the big event in Empire is when the lights come on. Mm -hmm. So what a concept. So he said, we're, we're going to do uh, the, the life story of Juanita Castro. And so that's the film that we did. And Ronnie Tavel, his idea was that um, he had the script and people, uh, you know, I was Raul and we, we sat on, uh, Marie Menken was in the front in a, in a big overstuffed chair and behind her were stools and we all sat on these stools and he would point to you and tell you what to say. And so then you had to say it. So it was that, that underground theater concept that he was doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so we did that. <laughs> um, so then I think a week later, uh, he called, he called me up and I, you know, that was my first year at BU. You had to be in the dorm as a freshman and then you could live, elsewhere so that first year uh so I'm, I'm in this girl's dorm and the phone rings and it's andy well hi Thad. this is andy and i i'm thinking oh, these girls don't even know who i'm talking to man so he said are you coming back we want to shoot the film again but i couldn't i was having like you know uh, finals or some shit like that and i said yeah come back and anyway so yeah <laughs> but he was a sweetheart and uh my friend uh, Joseph Freeman, he was he was in high school at the time, and um, he he loved Andy Warhol. He he, he grew up in Brooklyn, and he um, he wanted to interview Andy for the school paper. You know, he was cute, so he went to the factory, and anybody could walk in. I mean, that was the thing. Andy Warhol, you know, he was like an underground artist. It wasn't like he was. Uh, untouchable or anything. It's quite the opposite. You know, if you wanted to meet him, he was totally available and he loved that. He was extremely social. And he would, you know, whatever you wanted to do was cool. So he, Joey went up there and he asked him if he could interview him for the school paper. And he did. And then he became his assistant. So after high school got out, he would go to Andy's house and wake him up and make sure he got to this to the factory by like 4:30 or 5 o'clock or something and that became his job you know for however i mean i think he's he's and he took he got into polaroids so he has a whole collection of polaroids and i think so he's putting them into a book right now i was going to say i think this is going to be the next book and we haven't talked about your book yet okay. so please let's get into that it's the 50th anniversary of the coquettes explosion yeah. and i want to get into the title a bit we know what the coquettes is coquettes acid drag and sexual anarchy so i think we kind of covered acid drag already tell me about sexual anarchy well uh we believed that if you loved someone then you had sex with them and it was it was really there was like a moment in time where the door of androgyny opened wide and and any kind of sexual experience with each other as long as 
you loved it as long as it was not you were were not victimizing anyone it was all consensual and uh, it was how you met someone you know because a lot of people you would meet someone and it would be kind of a nonverbal exchange you know and you would you would get the vibe you know i mean all those clichés had a base in truth so you would meet somebody, you'd be really attracted to them, you would be kissing them, and then you would, you know what I mean? And after that, that's how you got to know someone, you know? And after that, you would see if you wanted to go further with them and find out what they were like and actually have a deep conversation, which was considered more intimate, you know what I mean? Getting into their mind was- Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, the Cockett House was very much like that, and it was, it was really like the sex house um, because everybody that was there had, had been, was totally turned on in that way. And, um, you know, the other thing was like the body consciousness in San Francisco, it was so elevated. It wasn't like anywhere else. Nothing was hidden. Everything was out in the open and people were so like the sexual consciousness was so high that um, it was almost when I first got there, I mean, uh, people people walking down the street, they would look you square in the eye and, you know, it was very out there. Um, so it was almost like when I first got there, it was, it was like intimidating already. It was so different. Even in New York, people, it wasn't like that, even uh, among the freaks there, you know. So, I mean, I, I was <laughs> so into that scene in New York, but really this was like the advanced, <laughs> you know, then it was the advanced, you know, class so um yeah i i mean you really people people's sexual awareness was almost the most important thing and it dictated it definitely dictated how you dressed and um you know the interaction was almost so prominent as, as far as the sexuality and so positive and welcoming you know there wasn't any um there was no judgment. I mean, it was a golden moment for sure when people were not judging each other. It was very giving and loving and sharing and all of that was, was so perfect. Man. Um, so I think you, you summed it up kind of nicely. I, I wrote this down. Um, <laughs> people were allowed to live at the end of their imagination. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought that at the time, I even thought that when I got there, I thought, this is it this is we're actually living where our imagination as far as our imaginations can go this is how it's being manifested right now and i realized that at the time and that's why i wanted to stay i mean i never left after i got there i wasn't supposed to stay there but you know my life totally changed and many many others that's what happened it was so life-changing because it was so advanced in a great way. I mean, it truly was, you know, the Jefferson Airplane there, the first band was called The Great Society and that's what it was. You know, it really was The Great Society, man. And everybody was participating. And a lot of people like the Cockett House, Jesus, uh, everybody was naked walking around or else, you know, uh, with naked with accessories. <laughs> accessorized, but with your uh, glittered penis. <laughs> so um, 
people were intimidated. You know, it was it was definitely people either came and jumped in or they ran. So, yeah, that's. that's I think what, that that still happens. Uh, how do you like? How do we get back there, Fayette? Please. <laughs> how do? What do we do? This is gonna crash somehow. You know, I mean, because. Uh, uh, here's a here's a quote from um, this is Midnight at the Palace that Pam Tent wrote, and um, because this is sort of like a, a counterpoint to your book, this is very text heavy. There aren't a lot of pictures in it. It's a great book, and your book is more like a coffee table book. Like it's a photo book, yeah. That, oh, it's like luxurious. The oh, I saw the pictures. I mean, mine's mine's on the way. So, listeners, I will do an update when it comes. But I saw a bunch of pictures from various courses that people have made. Looks gorgeous like a yeah like a coffee table book like something that you're gonna want to have out on your coffee table anyway back to pam tent so stories so her book is a lot of anecdotes from different members who remembered all all the different stories so her book is like one side and that's why i wanted to do something else that was the visual story because there were many photographers that took pictures because we were so we were the first we were the pioneers <gasps> in that way so we were photographically uh heavily covered i mean <laughs> obviously like uh, this was some, a subject yeah definitely and there's more there's more so I, i'm looking now to doing a deluxe edition you know a bigger book because i had to cut out 32 pages it was too big it, mm -hmm came in at almost 400 pages, so we had to cut. But uh, yeah, I, I want to do a deluxe edition with a DVD, so we'll see. Yes, uh, I, in 2002, the documentary came out. Oh yeah. That was like a little bump for the sort of, you know, zeitgeist in terms of the croquettes, and now your book is coming out. But um, I still, I feel like people who know the croquettes know, and we're obsessed, and we are like, oh, you, you know, like, did you see that, that bit that like Jalala made or, you know, and we get, we get very into it. But, but yeah. then, then there's the other thing of people who have never heard of the Cockettes, which is mind blowing to me because this is like, um, if you're into, I, I want to say like Grace Jones or, or James St. James and the Club Kids or Lady Gaga, um, you know, this is where we trace that back to in a, in a very large way. So Pam wrote, um, that New York fashion designer Mark Jacobs had found the inspiration for his 2004 spring line in images of, of an, I'm quoting, an obscure group of cross-dressers called the Coquettes. <laughs> it was amusing to realize that some 30 years after our radical politics, sexual rebellion, and theatrical extravagance made us the poster children for San Francisco's thrilling counterculture, we would be remembered merely as a fashion footnote. How do you react to that? Well, that was really, you know, Mark Jacobs um, lived in San Francisco and was part of the Castro scene uh, in the late 70s. I don't think he ever saw a show, but um, our visual language, uh, a version of drag that was more expansive than just creating the other facade, which was popular then. Just the uh, gender flipping as opposed to the gender uh, annihilating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that really took hold in the Castro. And so he was a part of that scene. 
So he knew about the Cockettes and he was influenced by them. And then he became a professional uh, fashion designer. So when he was looking to do something radical, so he gave, uh, this was after the film came out, like two years later, he gave his whole design team copies of the film and said, watch this film and this is going to be where we're coming from. So the film really, you know, we, there's something, you know, the big door that opened to all the radical behavior really kind of shut by the time the 80s, the mid 80s, you know, it went in a total other direction. And so people were not paying attention to what we had done. And we had only been together for three years. We didn't carry on after that, even though there were spinoff groups you know, like um, the Hot Peaches. There was groups in New York. There was groups all over that. Um, I want to say the Ramones opened for the Whiz Kids, which was one of your oh, sort no, of offshoots. Oh no, that was <laughs> so Tomato and I after because Tomato formed the Whiz Kids in Seattle, and Tomato and I we fell in love the summer before we went to New York. Uh, the the Whiz Kids came to San Francisco. You know these groups like the Ridiculous Theater people, the John Waters people, the Whiz Kid people. Whenever we would travel as a group to go see each other. You know, and when they would came, when, you know, we would go to the airport to greet them and, you know what I mean? And they had gotten in a van and drove to San Francisco to be with us. It was, it was like this, you know, the other stars were coming, you know, because we had our own galaxy and there were certain groups that were in it and they were coming and it was a big deal. So they came in the summer of 71 and Tomato and I met each other and it was like totally, when you say a bolt from the blue, it was bang. And yeah, so we completely fell in love and had a big romance and he wanted me to come to Seattle. So then in 72, when the group broke up, he said, oh, you have to come here right away. So then I, I went and spent the summer in Seattle. And when we got towards the fall, because when we were in New York, even though the opening night thing, whatever, but um, all the underground artists were really into it and they wanted us to come back and perform in New York. So Tomato and I went back with Link. We went to New York and we started looking for small places to play. And we found a place to live. We were living in this tenement. It was a city owned building on, it was off the Bowery. It was Bowery and Second Street. And we had the top floor. I mean, it was funky as hell, you know, but hey, you know, we were doing what we wanted. We carried on. We fucking carried on. <laughs> so, so we were looking for small places to play. And right around the corner was this bar called Hilly's. And then all of a sudden, but it was closed. And all of a sudden it had a new awning that said CBGBs. And just like they show in the film, I think Hilly must have done this every day because it was the bum's neighborhood. It was really, we and we were in another country called the Tramp, you know what I mean? That's where the, you know, the hobos lived on the Bowery. And so, you know, and then we, us, you know. So Hilly was sweeping the street and that's how we met him. And he showed us the club and it had a stage, it was perfect. So we started doing shows there and that's when, and then the band started coming in because he was divine. He really wanted, he was way into helping young culture and whatever it was, was fine with him. And it was a beautiful hangout and uh, welcoming to everyone. 
So we had this show that we did called Savage Voodoo Nuns. And, um, and then the bands would gradually come. And so, uh, and it would be not just one play. I mean, there'd be like, it would go on all night. Mm -hmm. So the Ramones, when we went, uh, I think it was uh, one of the WizKids, Gorilla Rose had gone that afternoon to CBGB's when the Ramones were doing a sound check, he wanted to check out who they were. And he came back and said, you're never gonna believe this group. So that's how we met the Ramones because they they opened for the <laughs> nuns, you know. Yeah, and you also um, did some costume production for. It. Sorry. Oh, I immediately brought Dee Dee home. Bless your heart. <laughs> this was before he made his rap album, though, right? And then passed him on his hand. <laughs> frequently shared we shared that's part of the sexual anarchy yeah and you also did so i just want to illustrate for our listeners who maybe like don't know um like how heavy your hand has been in, in terms of like the uh, the growing aesthetic of, of american culture i mean you were a costumer for uh bet midler when she was trying to break into las vegas Right, right. What was that experience like? Like early Bette Midler. This is not Beach's Bette Midler. This is like bathhouse Bette Midler trying to... Before the bathhouse, actually. Yeah, yeah. So when we, this happened when we were in New York in 70, 71, and in in, when, when the show was playing, she came to the show. I think my brother brought her to the show because she was doing the same, you know, they were into like 20s and 30s and 40s jazz and and the vocal groups and she was into the same kind of music and there was there was a like a small group of musicians that were into that uh and so they all knew each other so tim knew bet and he brought her to the cockettes show and then um he after the cockettes show was over um i stayed in new york for a while because it was christmas time and so you know i stayed there uh christmas in new york that's it. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're from there. It's yeah, like really. untouchable. Yeah. So I stayed there for Christmas and New Year's and everything. And so um, I, the, you know, the group stayed at the Albert Hotel, but a friend of mine named Rose, she had a place on, at, on Perry Street in the West Village. And she was teaching, she was an art teacher at Monmouth College. And she said, why don't you stay in my apartment? You know, it's, I'm not there right now. So John Flowers and I stayed on Perry Street. And so then when everybody went home, I stayed and I was still on Perry Street. So Tim brought her over one day and uh, we became fast friends and we talked about everything. And then she said, well, you know, she was, the thing was Johnny Carson was mentoring her at the time and he was bringing her on his show uh, quite often. And he was going to be headlining at the Sahara in Vegas. And he asked her to be the opening act. And this was her first really big out there thing. So she was, you know, she said, I am just, I don't, you know, and at that time also, you have to remember there was not like tour support, like that happened in the, in the record company, the great record company era of tour support, right? Mm -hmm. Knew the cocaine, right? So, and mega bucks, they were, you know, showering you with everything. So, uh, she was on her own and she said, I, I, I need help. 
and could you come and help me? I don't know what I'm going to wear. And can you bring some stuff? So I said, absolutely. <laughs> you packed up a suitcase full of coquetry. I packed up the coquette trunk. <laughs> so we went back home and we, we, we did shows after that. Um, we did Journey to the Center of Uranus. Uh, and that's when Divine came and she was in that show. And uh, then we did the last version of Pearls after Link added a third act and more songs and everything. This so is Pearls that, Over Shanghai? Right, Pearls Over Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So by that time, I had completely forgot about it. <laughs> I tried, you know, it's like, what? When? Was this, was she, it was in April that we were supposed to go. So I get a phone call one day and she said, hi. Do you remember? You're gonna come, right? You're still gonna come, right? And I was like, oh, wow, we're, oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, you know. So, so um, nobody went to Vegas at that time. I mean, not even your parents, really. <laughs> you know, it was not. It it was a mob town, and it was showgirls, women with big hair, and uh, the mob, and I mean, it was not someplace you went, certainly not as a hippie man. So it was a big deal. So the cockettes were all, Fan is going to Fan! They were all over the moon about it. So at the time, uh, when we got back, a few of us got a place. It, this was in the Castro um, on Belcher Street, and it was... John Flowers, myself, Wally, I think Daniel was there. I mean, it, it, you know, everybody was moving in and out of places, but so it was definitely John and Wally were there and I think Daniel was there too. So that's where I was when I had to start getting this together to actually go to Vegas, <laughs> fucking A. So um, the significant feature about this is that wallets were invented, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a place around the corner from where we were living that we, that was a clinic and Qualudes, as so many fabulous drugs, was invented to get you off heroin, right? But of course, when they immediately, when they realized that you got high, then it was illegal. You know, <laughs> you did. yeah, the, the, the euphoria, oh no, X the euphoria, God forbid you should feel good. So, and know it, you know what I mean? Mm. You're right. So, but meanwhile, this was when it was still legal. So everybody signed up and we called it the Qualud Clinic. But you had to sign up as a junkie, you know. So, I mean, who is going to use your real name and, and sign up and say you're an addict? I mean, nobody did that. So I had an alias. Betty Carlisle. Betty Carlisle, perfect. Very sweet and innocent lady. <laughs> and I still had this like sweet face. I mean, I've been fooling them my entire life, honey, really. They all think, oh, she's so angelic, look how cute. Oh my God. No, baby, not up here, man. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so 
every night it became uh, people would cop at the Qualid Clinic and then come to our house for like cocktail hour and get crazy high. So that's what was going on when I'm trying to all of a sudden figure out, you know, what to do with this. And it was just impossible. So I just put everything into the cockette trunk and shipped it air freight to Vegas. And this is an old steamer trunk, quite sizable, with the cockettes spray painted on top in neon yellow. And that got shipped off to Vegas on Delta. You know, it still had its Delta sticker on it. <laughs> so Bet tells the story that she was already there. And all of a sudden, she was in the lobby. And her, her boyfriend was one of the musicians in the band. And they're standing at the desk. And this trunk comes through the lobby. And they went, what the fuck is that? And then they go to get in the elevator. And the trunk follows them into the elevator. And they get out of the elevator. And the trunk follows them down the hall and goes into the room with them. And then she realized what it was. So I was supposed to go there, I think, on Thursday night. I don't, I can't quite remember. But uh, I just, you know, got too stoned and completely missed every flight. And then I also, so I was also had a footlocker that I brought with me that had shoes. It was all shoes. And I had the Coquette Press was in there because by that time we were in a lot of magazines and we'd already been in New York. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to be in Vegas. Maybe we could get further. You know, we all wanted to go to Paris. And I thought we could find somebody that can get us to Paris. So I brought all the press and that was all in the footlocker. So Thursday, completely missed the flight. Friday, and everybody was coming over at this point. Even more people were coming over because I was going to Vegas. <laughs> you know, it was so screamingly insane. Um, and I had gotten like a, a barrel of qualudes to take with me under Betty Carlisle. And Wally made me a hat, like a big hat with, you know what Wally looked like. He was, he, he wore everything all the time. So this hat was like a big sun hat that had flowers. It was wildly crazy. And Daniel, he rolled like three joints that were like stogies, you know, they were like cigars, these joints, and they were stuck in the hat. And he said, this will be fabulous. You get to the dressing room, you whip a joint out of your hat, you light it up and get everybody stoned and that'll be your entrance. And I said, yeah. You know, so. <laughs> so I got off on Friday and I got the last plane, which was at 2 a.m. And of course they give you champagne on the flight. So I got to Vegas and it was, what, like 3 a.m. in the morning, no one was in the airport. And, uh, you know, I get out of the airport and I'm on the street with my footlocker and waiting for some kind of cab or something. And I realized I have to pee. So I totter back in and, oh, meanwhile, you know, I didn't have any kind of straight, like whatever you want to call it, clothes at all. So I had, I had picked what I considered the most you know, moderate dress that I had was like a 1930s. It was kind of gray and white, you know, little chemise kind of 30s see-through dress. And I thought, 
they'll not notice me in this. <laughs> it's moderate by Cockette standards in the, in the universe that you had created. <laughs> so meanwhile, John, as I'm getting into the cab, John says, Fayette, don't wear the hat. And I'm like, I want to wear the hat. You know, don't wear the hat. <laughs> so I, I totter back into the airport and I come out of the bathroom and this security guard just grabs my purse. And I was so stoned that I didn't know what to do. And well, that was illegal. And he opens the purse and he pulls out that bottle. And the next thing I know, I'm up in the office and they're looking at my ID and it's not the same name as on the bottle, whatever. It's Betty Carlisle. <laughs> so bang, I'm in a police car and the lights of Vegas, which were not very many at the time, are going in the opposite direction. And I'm weeping <laughs> because when you're stoned and the picture changes drastically, what else? You burst into tears, man. Absolutely. So then I'm in jail and I got one phone call and I called Ben. I said, you arrested me right out of the airport. I don't know what I'm going to do. We'll come get you. It's so straight here. It's just hard. <laughs> we'll come get you right away. But they wouldn't let her. So I had to stay the night. So meanwhile, okay. So, so first I was in like a holding cell, you know, and the, the footlocker is in front of the holding cell and the cops open it up and they're, they're looking, I'm looking at them and they're looking at the cockpit press. And some of it, there was one softcore porn magazine called Adam, <clears throat> right? And there we were in that because Clay Gertie's put us in everything. <clears throat> and so they're looking at all that press and I had like a moment of clarity, what they call, and I remembered the joints and I thought, you know. Were you still wearing the hat? I'm still wearing the hat. <laughs> right. So, right. So I backed into the cell and I took the hat off and I pulled out the joints and there was like a lid in there uh, rolled into three joints and there was nothing else to do, but I, so I ate them. So I ate the joints and, and when they pulled me out of the cell, I was like picking the, the weed, you know, because this is Mexican weed full of stems and, you know, it's so funky, not like now. Mm -hmm. So pulling the leaves out of my teeth. And then I went, to whatever the women's prison, but I don't remember a thing after that. I must have just, you know, they threw me on a bed. So then I woke up the next morning and I didn't know where I was because I was so stoned. <laughs> yeah, you had eaten basically like an ounce of weed on, on top of whatever lewds you had taken up to this moment. And champagne. And the sh oh, that that's the icing on the on the. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of fizzle there. Yeah. So I fermenting. Yeah. So so I woke up it, and it was this big room full of bunk beds and I was the only one in there, and I thought I had been institutionalized that I had finally flipped out, and they caught me because that happened to a lot of people. You know, if they, if you had gone a little too far and you were not among your own people, you know, if you were among in the house or, you know, people would, that was like the big danger then was that you would be nabbed by the man and end up in a crazy house. And you had just, you know, you were just on a trip, but to them you were absolutely out of it because the, the communists protected 
we protected each other. So if somebody was speechless and too zoned out, then you would bring them in and put them to bed or sit them in the corner and just, you just stay right there until you come down because you don't want to be out there. So, but meanwhile, here I was in fucking Vegas and I thought now I've, it's happened and I've been put in the nut house. And I looked out the window and there was the desert and a wedding chapel. And I thought now I'm hallucinating. <laughs> oh, this is really bad. So then I went out, there was a room and there were other ladies there and they were watching TV or playing checkers or something. And I sat down next to this, this, this like black lady and, and uh, you know, I just sat there and she said, what are you in here for, honey? And I said, oh, well, drugs. You know, what about you? And she said, well, I was with my boyfriend last night and he was gambling and he wouldn't stop and he wouldn't stop. So I shot him. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I'm in here with murderers. Great. <laughs> Excellent. So, but then Bet came and got me around. Yeah, I mean, just the, sorry, the juxtaposition of like, I'm in here with murderers, but don't worry, Bet Midler is gonna come and bail me out of jail. It's so surreal. <laughs> and there was, there was this guy named Bill Hennessy. He was a makeup, he was a hairstylist and he traveled, he would travel with women that were on their own. I mean, if you read Joni Mitchell's biography, she talks about, going on gigs and she would go all by herself. And the, the guy that wanted to be her manager, she said, yeah, you can come, but you got to pay for the train or whatever yourself. And that's how it was. There was no, like, you know, nobody. So she had Bill Hennessy and the two of them came and bailed me out. And I said, you know, I think I should just go right home because this is not my town. And Bill said, no, no, let's just go have a drink. And uh, so we went to Caesar's Palace and sat on the barge, you know, and I'm looking out at Caesar's Palace and the barge, which was huge. I, is it still there? The Cleopatra's barge? Oh, it was so cool. And it would have this big prow, you know, that was a sphinx and it went way out into the casino and it would bob up and down and it was bobbing into the showgirl's big hair. Like they would be standing there and this big thing was bobbing into their hair. And I thought, this place is even crazier than I thought it was. My God. So he said, listen, this is a mob town, you know, and we're having cocktails meanwhile. And, but also they took away my qualities. And I thought, this is bad. You know? And so I called home, you know, right away and said, John, you got to send me some more, but you know, that never happened. It was too dangerous. You know? So um, Bill said, you know, uh, they just want to know who you are. And now they know who you are. And besides, you're with Johnny Carson and he's the man. And you can do whatever you want and you can wear what you want. So by this time, I'm already getting little tips, you know, I had some. And uh, I thought, this isn't so bad. So I stayed, and then Bet and I dove into the cockettes trunk every day, and we got dressed up every day, pranced around the casino, and they would part for us, you know. And then I dressed her up even more for her show, 
And uh, she was, I would stand in the wings and watch her and she would launch herself onto the stage all by herself. She was so tiny and she occupied that entire huge space. And she was incredible, just incredible. I mean, I knew that she was gonna be a big star, absolutely. Cause she could do what no one else could do. And you know, her whole thing was so avant-garde and brilliant. And she was such a great singer. You know, I thought, wow, this is gonna be fabulous. So Johnny Carson would stand behind me watching it and I would turn around and look at him and he was like, you know, he never spoke to me at all. And, uh, you know, I never met him, not even once. He was off somewhere else. But anyway, so we stayed there a week. And a week in Vegas is like 10 years anywhere else, especially then. Yeah, it was pretty surreal. I also, one day, me and the band decided, you know, there were, um, off in the desert, there were horse ranches. So we thought, we're going to go horseback riding course we're drinking constantly so we went off to this and I didn't have anything like even remotely so I had these zebra striped capri pants and my go-go boots my, my go-go boots which I adored they were from New York and um so that's how you know we go to this horse thing and we're waiting to get on the horses and we're sitting in the lounge and getting more drunk and then we get on the horses and of course the horses don't want to go anywhere, you know? So, you know, I think I got thrown off the horse or something. In your white go-go boots. <laughs> you also made wearable art for, uh, I want to say the Rolling Stones, uh, Diana Ross. Mine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I made these, uh, it was right when vests were coming in. I think it was, probably in the early 80s or something. Um, I wanted to have like a small wearable art business and I didn't quite know what to do. Uh, and my friend was doing jewelry and she said, why don't you just come to the studio and hang out and you'll think of something. So I went to her studio and she was dyeing beads and making these beautiful necklaces of all these bright colored beads and things on them. But just prior to that, she had done uh, jewelry uh, with findings that, that are brass stamped findings of everything you can imagine, from lion's heads to occult to Egyptian. I mean, it was just everything. And so I looked at that and I thought, you know, that would be fantastic all over a vest. So then, of course, I went to the Goodwill, <laughs> where else? And th there's here in LA, there's a, this is already here in LA, and, and there's a, a St. Vinny's that's the biggest one, and it's way downtown, like beyond downtown. And it had a room that had a, a lot of menswear. And I found this rack of about 20, at least 20, Victorian men's black vests. I mean, it was what I was looking for. Now that's what I wanna say. That's the magic of thrift stores, flea markets. You cosmically send out the message of what you want and then you find it and it appears. That has happened to me. I can't even tell you how many times. And I've seen it happen to my other friends too. I know I go with them 
to a three, you know, a thrift store, or a flea market, and they'll be looking for. I know what they're looking for, and there it'll be, and it'll be something I've never seen before. But there it'll be just for them. And my feeling is that here we are on this planet, and there is a circle of items that flow around the planet like satellites, and that circle of items is constantly in motion, and you can call it. You know what I mean? And it will come to you. So I found these gorgeous, never worn Victorian black vests. And, and I never found them again, actually. You know, they're very hard to find, actually. So Ooh. I decorated them with these findings. You know, I got this friend of mine made a drill press for me. So it had a very tiny hole. And I would zip into these findings of all kinds. And I put them all over the vests. and my first customer was Maxfields, which is this high-end designer store here in LA. And so they sold them to the Rolling Stones and I did a hat for Diana Ross. And so I did berets with all the stuff on did I Did I read New Kids on the Block also? Yeah, New Kids on the Block. And, uh, oh, what was his name? He, he was a talk show host. Arsenio Hall. Arsenio Hall was on Time Magazine wearing one, right? <laughs> And uh, Ron Wood wore one, and there was a photograph of the Rolling Stones. And, and the photographer actually sent me the, the picture of the group and with Ron Wood wearing the vest. So, yeah. So I rode that pony right to the end of the line. Yeah. Again, I mean, I just want to reiterate what I was saying before, like how heavy your hand has been in terms of like the wear American wearable art, you know, for again, from... You don't think of that, but... Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess. Yeah, well, I, I'm telling you that. <laughs> I had my own label and I, you know, I felt like I'm in business. Mm -hmm. Um, how about, how much of the authenticity, cultish authenticity, um, of the cockettes do you think informed, um, the idea of real in Sylvester's big hit? Oh my God. Silly. You know, we called him silly. He was so dear. Oh my God. I loved him so much. Uh, I, I, <clears throat> Daniel was my stage partner and he was living with John Rothermill on Market Street. And for a while I, I stayed with him and Sylvester was living there too. So I got to live with Sylvester for a time. And Sylvester was one of the greatest people I've ever met. He was so warm and loving. He was absolutely incredible. And uh, it was Reggie who discovered Sylvester because he was from LA and he would go back and forth to LA. And he brought, I mean, he, he met Sylvester because Sylvester had a group. I mean, when, when he came out to his family, they threw him out, you know, I mean, yeah. and that was common. That was common because it was so unusual in a family, even if you were gay, first of all, you didn't come out in the family, but People were starting to come out in the late 60s and early 70s. They were starting to come out in their families or just leave and come to San Francisco or, you know, where they could actually have a life. And but Sylvester, all the singers that he admired were female vocalists like Billie Holiday. And, you know, so he wanted to be that. And Reggie recognized that. And he said, well, you, you have to come with me because we have a group. And so he brought him right to the theater 
and right onto the stage and he started to sing. And I mean, we were not talented in that way. We were all artists, but we were not as yet performers. And, you know, so yeah, we, that, that really wasn't the point of a Cockett uh, show though. Yeah. Talent, yeah. So yeah, when, when, uh, what was it? Gorgi Dollar said, you know, having no talent is not enough. We thought, yes. Perfect. <laughs> But Sylvester really did have talent. We were spellbound. And Peter Minton, uh, who became a really important pianist, and he had a, a big band later on. I mean, the whole thing of, of what's called vintage, you know, there was no word for that before. But that became a big trend. And we certainly were pioneers in that one uh, in all mediums. So uh, Peter Minton was way into the 20s jazz music. So he was Sylvester's played with Sylvester and you know the the stage when we were doing a show it was total madness but when Peter would start to play a song and Sylvester would appear the hush came over the audience and everybody stopped what they were doing you know there was madness backstage as well I mean it was crazy fabulous crazy and Sylvester would sing and everyone just soaked it up it was just so gorgeous so he was able to materialize his dream and live at the end of his imagination mm -hmm. on the stage. And that was really the purpose yeah. of the Cockettes. Yeah. And I, I think that, that those lyrics, like, you know, the Cockettes weren't real, they were mighty real. Yes. <laughs> you know, and that seems like such a perfect, like, uh, you know, encompassing of that idea. Because once you became incarnated, as in freed, freed up in the Cockettes, you never went back you know? So he carried that whole thing throughout his entire career. And you can see footage of him when he talks about who he is. He talks about his full-on persona and that he's not hiding behind anything. You know, he brought that forward in everything. And uh, even on these, you know, odd footage pops up everywhere where he's on some TV show and there he is talking about that, you know, about who he is and how, unashamedly and uh there wasn't anybody doing that then there's a rainbow that's appearing on your cheek i want you to really yeah. oh i think there's like a yeah there, yeah there it is yeah you have this like rainbow right on your cheek it must be there's a there's a crystal in my window it must be hitting me right <laughs> so so let's i've kept you for so long it's been so amazing but i really before i let you go I, I just need you to tell me and the next generation of freaks after me and the next generation of freaks after them, like how do we get Mighty Real? Please tell us. Definitely more difficult now than it was then because we were, you know, we were the youth movement and we were supported. Everybody was educated for one thing and we were supported in doing radical things by the society because um, it was open and then it shut down when they didn't like how radical it became. Um, but there's nothing more powerful than the group consciousness and whatever you seek to do, try to find a group because if you have a supportive group, there's no limit to what you can do. And um, I've met a lot of people, people that are contacting me now that live in communes or in groups that live in factories. This one guy um, that I did an interview for, I think it was uh, 
called Echo Magazine or something. Uh, and this was in London and he lives in like a big loft where this whole group of artists live. And that's, I think it's really, it's even more difficult now to do anything on your own if you really want to do something that is out there, that is not supported by the people around you or even the society or anything. Um, find a group or create a group because we became so much more powerful as a group than we were on an individual basis. It was, it was our power for sure. And I think now a group consciousness is really important because people who want to destroy us are in a very solid group. And so the people that want to create and expand the universe in a positive way need to be a solid group. It's definitely the saving grace. Group Community grace. is the key, group consciousness. Absolutely, support. Yeah, loving support, absolutely. Oh, that's right on your nose. Let me end by saying happy fucking 75th birthday. Okay. Hey, uh, it's coming right up. It's, uh, the, it's amazing. Yeah. And the, your legacy is persevering. Can you, again, tell us the name of your book, where people can get it? The Cockettes. Acid, Drag, and Sexual Anarchy, 1969 to 1972. And if you want a signed copy, it's thecockets.net. And then I'll sign you a copy. And the UK, actually, it's, uh, it's, it's $35 to the UK, but it's really more expensive to other parts of Europe. But I think it's coming out in stores in Europe this month, in June. It'll be available in June if you're in another country. But domestically, I have free shipping. <laughs> <laughs> so um, people can go to thecockettes.net. Right. And uh, can you give us your Instagram handle? And hopefully people are- will Oh, the Instagram, you know, I, I did the Instagram and, and it said, put your name and I put my own name because I, <laughs> you know, this was really when Instagram was new. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know that you were supposed to make a funny name. So I just put my name. <laughs> So Instagram is under my name. Yeah. yeah. And I'll put all of these links in the show notes and a bunch more links for our listeners. And I have a website too. It's just under payethauser.com. Perfect. And I did, I think I saw um, the book for sale online. So um, oh, it's, it's on, it's over 50 uh, booksellers have it. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, certainly. Barnes and Noble, absolutely. And all these independent booksellers under... Uh, it's called bookshop.org is a collection, a network of independent booksellers. So perfect. It's everywhere. It, it's everywhere. And listeners get it in your house. If you like Lady Gaga, um, trace that history, know what you're talking about. We, you gotta love the Gaga. Um, but you know, I, I personally believe, and, uh, I hope our listeners will too. If not for the Cockettes, there would be no Lady Gaga. Right. <laughs> And so, you know, we like to learn our history around here. Our, our listeners are kind of history buffs. And this is something that if you, if you don't know about the Cockettes, you are about to know. <laughs> Thank you so much. But this has been a dream come true Thank talking you. to you. I, I can't even, I can't even express what an amazing thrill this has been. I'm so happy you called. <laughs>
Yeah. Hey, anytime you want to talk, you call me up. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely keep me in your email rotation and keep us. Yeah. And I mean, I really, you know, the, the live events, I really wanted to do it. Yeah. But when I start to travel, when things open up, like a year from now, I'll let you know. Absolutely. And you can come back on the show and hopefully you'll bring whatever you're doing to Montreal. Oh my God, that would be great. I've never been to Montreal. Oh, well, we love wearable art. There's actually, um, I am going to put a little note in my mind and try to make the universe come together on this because there is a wearable art, small independent festival in Montreal called Wiggle. Oh, wow. And the, like, um, I think the last one I was at, Amanda Lepore was the special guest, oh. you know, so it's like, I'm going to put that message out into the universe that Fayette Hauser is going to bring some stuff to the wearable art festival in Montreal called Wiggle. And let's pray that that happens. But if not, keep me posted on everything you do. Oh, I want to know. That sounds great. What is yeah. That? Yeah. Oh, it's, I've seen some um, amazing choreography, very like avant-garde. Wow. very avant-garde some of the most amazing moving costuming also the performance there too oh it is everything that you would love it oh that would be great yeah as soon as you can travel you come you come see me i will <laughs> thank you again so much Faye. i i wish we could talk all night but i know what time uh, is it there it is five o'clock. It's dinner time here. So lunchtime for you. <laughs> and uh, again, listeners, I'm going to put everything that I think um, needs to go there into the show notes and links and articles about the Coquettes and about Fayette and about this amazing legacy that you are continuing. Thank you so much for making this book. I just, I'm like drooling at the photos. I can't wait to smell it. <laughs> <laughs> people are telling me i love new book smell and i just imagine that there's going to be so much magic in there and so much for me to learn that i haven't already unearthed (laughs) like i'm signing it there's one page that just has the name in black and it's a white page so i'm signing it on that and i'm starting to decorate those pages of course you are in here with that you know so i thought well i'm gonna decorate the page so if you get it from me get you're getting a (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so reach out to Fayette if you want a custom, custom decorated copy of this book. Amazing. Thank you so much, Fayette. It's been an honor. Thank you very much for making the program and send me the link. You must be a witch.